This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Okay, let's go ahead and, and get started so we can stay on schedule. Uh, it's a great honor for me to introduce our next and, and last speaker. This is going to be a one-man one show uh, for the end. Uh, John Hennessy is not only one of the most famous and respected computer scientists and a member of our department, of course, uh, but he's also the president of our university. So this is another way in which computer science is having impact uh, outside uh, our field. Uh, John? Jeez. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. That usually only happens when I enter the faculty senate, actually. <laughs> well, I was asked to say something about why our discipline, why computer science matters. And I've broadened this a little bit to say something about why we have mattered over these 40 or 50 years that we've been a discipline, why will continue to matter, and what's been important about why we've mattered. How have we made such an enormous difference? And this will be a little Stanford-centric, although much of what I'll say will apply more broadly to computer science. Now, in current fashion, top 10 lists are the way to go. But I ended up with 11, so you'll have to forgive me on number 11. So what are the top 11 reasons this discipline of computer science matters, why this department has mattered, why it's been successful, and why I believe it has an absolutely incredible future ahead of it? So number one, great people. Just incredible, inventive, smart, creative people. Faculty and students. You only had to look at those first two panels. Look at that first panel. Ed Feigenbaum, Don Knuth. John McCarthy, Gene Golub, or look at the panel of our alumni who were students there many years, well, a few years ago for most of them, just a few years ago. Margaret Wright, Barbara Liskoff, Rod Brooks, Ron Rivest, Raj Reddy. We attract really talented people and they do great things. Nils commented on that beneficial circle. Great students bring great faculty, great faculty bring the next generation of great students. Ed Feigenbaum mentioned what I usually say, people who want to change the world, people who really want to make a difference. And by the way, I agree wholeheartedly with John McCarthy's statement, startups are only one way. Look at the contributions that Don Knuth and John McCarthy made. They never started a company, but they certainly helped define computer science and change it as a discipline. Second. This is a discipline that practices equal opportunity for young people. In fact, it even practices something you might think of as affirmative action for young people by some unknown force. This is a discipline where some of the very best work is done by people when they're young, when they're graduate students or in their early stages as researchers. It isn't a discipline where you need a large laboratory and a hundred students and postdocs working for you to change things. Best work often comes from young people. 
and whether it be Stanley or Google or Yahoo or all the tremendous things that have gone on here, the young people take chances and do great things. I think that's made an enormous difference in our discipline and it's what keeps people coming to this discipline. Third, as a field, we accept evolution. I don't mean in the biological sense, I mean evolution of our discipline and even extinction. We're willing to say some areas are solved or perhaps not as important going forward as they once were and we have to change. You only have to look at the Stanford Computer Science Department. Gene Golub mentioned that once half the people were in a numerical analysis. Today they're not. The other half was theory, by the way, so it really has changed a fair amount. That evolution, I believe, is healthy. It's one of the things that's kept computer science at the edge, at the frontier, continuing to invent new things. Fourth is a point that Bill Daly alluded to early. We have a changing technology base. That technology base has provided constant force, an impulse to change and think about new things, new capabilities and new opportunities. Ed Feigenbaum said he was the core memory generation up on the first panel. Um, when I got to Stanford, the very first machine we bought for our laboratory was a VAX, the first machine that Digital Equipment Corporation shipped with semiconductor memory. But look at what that revolution in memory technology did. Not only did it provide incredible new uh, capabilities for people who were using machines where you could actually have enough memory. You know, I, I take my sophomore college class, this little group of undergraduates I teach many years, to the computer museum and I show them these computers and I remind them that 64K was really a lot of memory at one point. And they, you mean, well you mean 64 megabytes, certainly. No, 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 64K. But look at what that technology also did. As Gordon Bell once pointed out, when semiconductor memory came along, it changed the cost ratio between logic and memory which formerly had made memory expensive and logic somewhat cheaper. All of a sudden, memory was considerably cheaper than logic. When that flipped, all kinds of new ideas came out. Not only were caches an obvious thing to do and a great thing to do, but the risk ideas really came out of the fact that instruction memory was no longer the most crucial, most expensive component. That you could afford to sacrifice a little bit in the density of instructions in order to get improved performance. Fifth, information and computation is at the center not only of this discipline but the center of so many other disciplines, the core of so much of what we do. There's been a lot of talk certainly on this panel and around the country about the revolution in biology. I'm a subscriber to the fact that biology is going to be the science that really helps shape this next century in the same way that physics or chemistry did in the decades and centuries before. But biology is a very information computation centric technology discipline. Whether you think about simulation, I think the point David Shaw made was a great point. Simulation will be at the heart of much of what we do as we try to push the frontiers of biology forward. And as we try to not only understand the phenomena, but actually bring our insights to clinical applications that are going to help people around the world. Biology is an information, the human genome is about information, albeit encoded 
by some designer who certainly was not intelligent. <laughs> he would have never made something so complicated. Sixth, we have been supported by a far-sighted policy of funding of basic research by the federal government. It has driven innovation in this discipline and yielded enormous results. And I certainly hope we continue to do that. But that will be critical to the future of this discipline and critical in the bigger picture, I absolutely be believe, to the economic competitiveness and information security and economic security of this country. It's been a real driver, I think, for so many of us that have worked in this discipline, and we need to ensure that that funding of research continues to happen. Seventh, you think about what's at the heart of computer science. What's at the heart of it as a discipline? I was inspired by two things that I learned, one from Don Knuth and one from Jeff Ullman, core insights about what makes our discipline unique. Don was once giving a talk, I don't remember whether it was one of his computer musings or another talk, and he opined that what made computer scientists unique was they were algorithmic thinkers. They thought differently about problems than other disciplines. It was this field that helped create algorithmic thinking as a way to approach problems. And it is one of the most critical ways we know how to approach problems. That ability to do algorithmic thinking, which is what we really try to help teach our students, is an absolutely crucial capability going forward. Not just in computer science, but in many other disciplines, because computing will be at the root of many of those other advances. And second was a point that Jeff Ullman once told me. He said, computer science is the discipline that's about managing complexity. Computer scientists build the most complicated things in the world. If you think about, well, a lot of those programs don't work, but anyway, they are the most complicated programs in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about Microsoft Office or Windows or Mac OS, or just think about how many lines of code go into making your cell phone work. And most of the time, your cell phone does work. Although I noticed my trio needs to be rebooted from time to time, but that's something they can work on. We build incredibly complicated things. Much of what we do in our research is to learn how to build those things. I once said to somebody that much of what goes on in systems research is to learn a set of principles that guide the construction of software or hardware objects. And that's true about compilers or operating systems. What we're really trying to do is derive a key set of principles around which we can design systems that are robust, work well, and help us to make those designs robust and work well, help us to tame complexity. We tame it through abstraction. We tame it through formalization. But those key approaches are things that have applications far and wide. And I don't think in this world that certainly is becoming more complex not simpler, those will be key insights and key capabilities. Eighth, we've benefited from an incredibly symbiotic relationship between the university and industry, especially here at Stanford. That relationship does work both ways. I think as Bill Miller pointed out in his remarks today about the computer forum, 
It was from the beginning a vision that the communication would go in both directions, that companies would come here and learn about what was going on in cutting-edge research and that we would learn more about the challenges they faced and about what they were doing. Certainly, our startups have been a key way for transferring technology, and that transfer of technology has had enormous impact beyond the realms of the university. But it's also that connection has helped all of us in the university be better informed about what the real problems are, about where the opportunities are, and about what people are doing. What are they currently working on? Because the last thing you want to be in an academic research environment is one mile down the train track from a company that's speeding it down that track at 100 miles an hour. You want to be further down the research spectrum. One of the things I've found quite interesting in the last few years is the lobbying I've received by some of my colleagues in industry that simply said, universities need to move further down the train track. We need to do more risky, further out work. And I think that insight is certainly true. Ninth, we've been entrepreneurial risk takers. We value impact. Computer science has not been a discipline that's been built by small incremental steps. Although we've worked on problems where small steps have perhaps been the only way we've been able to make good progress. But even in those cases, the addition of those small st steps has added up to something that's contributed and changed the discipline in a significant way. It's hard to change the computer industry now. It's a big industry. And yet, we are remarkably successful at doing it time and time again. This is as much encouragement to the young people as it is my own comments about where we've come. We need to think about continuing to be entrepreneurial, to take risks, and to do things differently. If we become too conservative, computer science will not be a discipline that flourishes the way it has. Tenth. This has been a field that has gone through an incredible number of discontinuities. It has had an enormous number of tipping points, places where technologies have come together and caused a dramatic revolution in the way we think about technology, in the applications that are possible, or the way in which people use computing. Just think about over the history of it. The microprocessor came along, and together with a few other things, helped create the personal computer. Certainly changed the lives of everybody. Various pieces of computer architecture research and compiler technology came along to create the insights around instruction-level parallelism and created a 15 to 20-year roadmap for incredible increases in performance. Networking. Ethernet LANs came together with the ARPANET, together with the TCP IP protocols, to create the, ether, create the internet and change the way in, people, way in which people use computing technology. And URLs came together with visual browsers to create the web. And certainly, I've yet to meet the person who said, they could have predicted how pervasive the web would become. In fact, I remember going down to the trailer because in those days, um, Dave Philo and Jerry Yang were 
not in a real building. They were in a trailer housed somewhere. It just shows it doesn't matter what kind of building you're in when you do your research. We should all remember that. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember going down to their trailer, and what convinced me that the web was going to take off was when they showed me that a local pizza place had put a website up, and you could order a pizza before you came in and pick it up ahead of time. And then I realized that the web was going to be the ultimate publishing vehicle for people all over the world. And certainly, it did become that. And most recently, look at Stanley. Look at the DARPA Grand Challenge. Look at the rate of progress that occurred in a relatively short period. In a time, of course, built on lots of research. Lots of research that our colleagues at Carnegie Mellon led for in many years. But all of a sudden, it came together in a way that I think none of us would have guessed that it would have come together quite so quickly. Um, those kinds of tipping points, those kinds of discontinuities, I believe will continue to happen. And they will keep the field vibrant and exciting. The last point is a subtle one, but one that I think is absolutely crucial. So this is my number 11. In computer science, and indeed in academic computer science, or academia more widely, no one person is in charge. There is no single vision that defines what the faculty and the students work on. There's no one project that everybody's working on where they've all been assigned a piece of it. The field and the leadership and the breakthroughs that occur are distributed around. They are the individuals doing the work that make those breakthroughs. That sometimes leads to an analogy about running a university. That analogy says, well, running a university is like herding cats. I want to give you a short video that will show you the challenge of herding cats. Can we get the video, please? these little, I don't know why they should be proud of having invented this thing. Volume. Herding cats. Don't let anybody tell you it's easy. Anybody can herd cattle. Holding together 10,000 half-wild short hairs, well, that's another thing altogether. Being a cat herder is probably about the toughest thing I think I've ever done. I got this one this morning, right here. And if you look at his face, it's it just ripped to shreds, you know? You see the movies, you, you hear the stories, it's... I'm living a dream. Not everyone can do what we do. I wouldn't do nothing else. It ain't an easy job, but when you bring a herd into town and you ain't lost a one of them, ain't a feeling like it in the world. Well, the real lesson about herding cats, isn't that a great video? <laughs> the real lesson about herding cats, if you watch that video careful, carefully, is that it's a lot more fun to be a cat than to be a cat herder. <laughs> and being a cat, being in this discipline, being a researcher, teaching the kind of bright young people that we can bring to it, that's, I think, what makes people stay in computer science and what gets them excited about it. It's that kind of excitement of having that next generation and being able to inspire them. 
and seeing students go out and change the world. And that's what I hope this discipline will always keep. Thank you for your attention, and I think we have some time for some questions. Okay, who's got the first hard question? No courage. It said on my briefing, Q, followed by Q&A, Hector. <laughs> Which one? Don has a question. He gets to ask the first question because he interviewed me when I came here to ask about a job. And in fact, Don gave me a great um, piece of advice. He said, um, I asked him, Don, how can you be so productive given everything a faculty member has to do? So he was the one who told me, don't be on any committees. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure you love what you do because then you're going to find it irresistible. But Don. Oh, OK. So um, yeah, someone remarked about an hour ago that, uh, uh, that, that kids are, are saying it's no fun to be a programmer, and I'm, and I'm tending to, uh, uh, these days, and I'm tending to agree with them when I see that programming is consisting mostly of, of, of being able to uh, uh, call a, a set of prepackaged subroutines uh, uh, with the right calling sequence and, you know, and get the parameters in the right order, and that's about all you have to do. Uh, do you have any ideas on how uh, to make programming fun again? Yeah, well, I think, I think several things have happened in programming that are important uh, to keep in mind. I, I, a lot of the young people when I'm advising students, undergraduates mostly these days, say, well, I don't want to be a programmer because it's so isolating. I don't want to sit in a cubicle all day and write code. Um, now, some people find that attractive, but others find it um, dehumanizing, I suppose one might say. So the first thing you point out is that Nobody writes code like that anymore. Um, like it or not, the systems we write are big enough that they require collaboration. They require people working in cooperative teams. Um, I, so that's, that's a, a real fundamental change. Um, I think our challenge, our challenge, when the panel was up uh, and John asked them, um, what would be a real change, something that would really change this field and would be a real change in what we're doing, I was thinking, software that worked. Consistently, that would be a real change. The good news is we built this very complex systems. The bad news is we still don't know how to build software reliably enough. And that's something we need to work on. We need to, we need to go back to the basics. We need to think about better programming languages. And now we're going to have to face the added problem is that all the machines in the future will be inherently parallel. And therefore, we're going to have to deal with that issue. We have managed to keep postponing it and postponing it and postponing it. Well, it is now upon us, and I think um, the fact that we've postponed it just means that we're out of time to work on it. Um, it's, going to be a, it's going to be a challenge. The good news is there is decades of research ahead because of that. Hi, so you talked about great things about the field, which I think we all agree with, but since you watched the earlier panels, what do you see as problems with computer science? Uh, right now and Not enough looking women. into the... Yeah, well, that's right. 
I think that, that is an issue. I think um, all of us in the field, I remember a time of optimism. Computer science was going to be the scientific engineering field that attracted as many women or a significant number of women. And then in the boom period, it, uh, it went away. Probably a lot of things contributed to that, the video game uh, kind of mentality. Um, but I think we also, our, our biggest challenge, which gets back to the one the panel talked about, is getting the best and brightest young people. And um, here, I think, We've got to fix K-12 education in this country. And the place it is most broken is in the teaching of science and mathematics. It has a lot of problems, but in science and mathematics. And that's going to have to change by professionalizing the teaching of science and mathematics and by getting lots of bright young people who graduate with degrees in science and math and to go back and teach in those schools. And then you've got to treat them like professionals. You've got to compensate them like professionals. So I worry about our ability to attract enough people. I think Jim Clark alluded to exactly that issue. I think that is going to be our, one, of our real, one of our real challenges. Um, I think occasionally in the attempt to be relevant to industry, we sometimes become too incremental. And that is a danger. I think we do have to stretch ourselves and think outside the box. Um, think about machine learning, which uh, Jerry Yang talked about, which has become the hot new thing and has played such a key role in some, so many of our advances. That technology took a long time. It was a long time before machine learning really could solve some practical problem. But it's important to make that long-term investment on some of these big issues that can really revolutionize. And I think natural language processing, speech recognition, these are all in the same territory. Working on human-computer interfaces. I sometimes point out that if I stood back 20 years ago, or 40, year ago, 40 years ago even, and looked, tried to guess what the future would look like, I would have never guessed how many computers they were, how cheap they were, how fast they were, but I certainly would have expected them to be easier to use than they are today. So we've got a real challenge ahead of us, and this is a challenge we can only solve by working with people who understand other disciplines, who come from psychology and understand something about cognitive systems and how people think. Um, we have to think about making computers work better with people, not people work better with computers. So uh, my reaction when I saw that film was that uh, computer graphics has become entirely too powerful. Mm. <laughs> so, but we liked but, it. <laughs> but that's not my question. So among uh, the books that I've read recently are Thomas Friedman's uh, The World is Flat, which has uh, a view of the world in which Stanford would play a very important role toward peace and, and world prosperity. And another book is Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, mm -hmm. which offers a much more pessimistic view and a view that may be gaining some currency in the United States uh, in which we should uh, close down uh, things that will cause us to lose competitiveness relative to the rising other civilizations in the world. It seems like that view will pose a severe challenge to Stanford. What will our reaction be? And this is, of course, not just an issue in computer science. Mm. Well, that's a good question. Um, the world is flat, or pretty nearly so, and there's no turning the clock back. You can't turn the clock back. I think given what's happened with the internet and the ability to communicate ideas around the world so quickly, given what's happened with jet travel 
and what that's done, the ability of people to travel around the world. Given what's happening in the rest of the world, as they build up better educational systems and better mechanisms for building out industry, which is absolutely crucial to their development. Given all those things, I don't think you can possibly think about closing the borders and retiring. Um, it just won't work. You know, I'm remembered, I remember here that um, Herbert Hoover was uh, the first Stanford graduate to become president. In fact, the only Stanford graduate to be president. The recent guy's from Yale. Um, So uh, Herbert Hoover was the only uh, uh, Stanford graduate to become president. He was a distinguished businessman, understood a lot about how to run businesses, entrepreneur around the world, was elected president. The beginnings of the recession began to appear. And what did he do? He was convinced to raise tariffs. That went from recession to depression because it stopped the economic systems around the world. The economies are all connected. You can't untie the ties that have been made. I think we all, not only in the US, but a, as a global society, have to think about a world where we try to get all the boats to float higher. And that doesn't mean closing the borders. That means opening them up. The way to approach issues of censorship in China is not to say US companies shouldn't go into China. The way to do it is to get the companies there and get the people to understand that they should have free access to information. It will happen if we're there. If we're never there, it simply won't happen. So I think that's the way we have to approach the future. It will be challenging. We're going to have to run faster. We're going to have to climb higher. And education will become the coin of the realm. We have to continue to ensure that we have the best education system in the world. We're in great shape in higher education, although we're going to be challenged. We're going to be challenged by what happens in Asia, but we're going to need a K-12 system that is competitive with the rest of the world in order to be in the kind of position, maintain the kinds of standard of living, the kinds of jobs for the next generation that they want to have access to. Thank you all, and I think uh, John Mitchell has some closing words. Thank you. Uh, on uh, as director of the Computer Forum, your host for the day, I'd like to first thank all the speakers and panelists and session chairs for helping us have such a wonderful uh, day here, hearing about computer science in our department. So thank you. <laughs> then I'd like to thank the forum staff for making everything work. Suzanne, Connie, Jordan. and the program chairs for this event, Hector and Ed Feigenbaum. Then on behalf of the forum, I'd like to thank uh, all of you, all of our guests, the forum members for supporting the department and coming to uh, meet with us today. I'd now like to invite you all to join us for a reception out in the lobby. Thank you.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.